This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Donald Trump is broadcasting his intent to go full dictator if he's elected in 2024. And I say this because we recently learned that he's plotting revenge against his political opponents and former allies who turned on him. And he's even mulling a plan to invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office to use the military to violently shut down citizens protesting his inauguration. Now, additionally, he's planning an unprecedented crackdown on all forms of immigration, including legal immigration, by ramping up raids and rounding them up and placing them in sprawling concentration camps and deporting millions per year. And white nationalist Stephen Miller says it will be the most spectacular migration crackdown. Now, on top of that, his allies are currently forming a pro-Trump army with, quote, up to 54,000 loyalists across government to rip off the restraints imposed on the previous 46 presidents. Axios further explains these foot soldiers would be ready for legal, judicial, defense, and regulatory and domestic policy jobs. His inner circle plans to purge anyone viewed as hostile to the hard-edged authoritarian-sounding plans he calls Agenda 47. Now, none of this is surprising at all if you're already aware of Project 2025. I'll link to a video that I did about that before down below. But this is a plan, essentially, to seize control of the administrative state and fill positions at all levels of government with Trump loyalists. Anyone who is not a Trump loyalist will be fired. Now, this plan to recruit Trump loyalists right now is part of Project 2025. Axios explains, the government-in-waiting is being orchestrated by the Heritage Foundation's well-funded Project 2025, which already has published a 920-page policy book from 400-plus contributors. Think of it as a transition team set in motion years in advance. Heritage President Kevin Roberts tells us his apparatus is orders of magnitude bigger than anything ever assembled for a party out of power. In other words, Project 2025 is already well underway right now. They're doing it. They're executing the plan. Now, Trump's first order of business has been to consolidate power. He's been pretty open about that. And there are people already forming a pro-Trump army for him at this very moment. Now, if you're thinking that this all feels eerily similar to what Putin did in Russia or what Erdogan did in Turkey, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But to me, this feels a lot more like Mussolini or even Hitler, arguably, based on his own rhetoric. Case in point. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. Now, he also reiterated those comments in a tweet on Truth Social, writing, In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, that's ironic, and radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, lie, steal, and cheat on elections, and will do anything possible, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and the American dream. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Despite the hatred and anger of the radical left lunatics who want to destroy our country, we will make America great again. Now, in response, Brian Tyler Cohen shared this German cartoon published in 
1939 depicting Jewish people as vermin being swept out of Germany and not being let back in. And Trump's promise there to root out leftist vermin feels very similar to that Nazi cartoon. Now, Mehdi Hassan of MSNBC is going to give us some additional context and comments from Trump that are explicitly Hitlerian. Vermin. That's not a word we often hear used in everyday conversation. In fact, it's a very specific word that carries a very specific historical connotation. It was a word frequently used by Nazis to dehumanize Jewish people during the Holocaust. For example, according to historical accounts, in 1939, Adolf Hitler told the Czech foreign minister, quote, This vermin must be destroyed. The Jews are our sworn enemies. Now, this isn't the first time Trump has been caught echoing the rhetoric of Nazis and white supremacists. A few weeks ago, he said that undocumented immigrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, which again echoes the rhetoric of Hitler, who made similar remarks in Mein Kampf. So there you have it. An ex-president and current frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination, not once, but twice in just the last few weeks, taking a page right out of Hitler's Nazi propaganda playbook. Yeah, it just kind of feels like maybe this is cause for concern, maybe a little bit. And uh, believe it or not, there is more examples. Patriot Takes shared this graphic from Midas Touch, which shows more parallels between Hitler and Trump when it comes to quotations. From the call to take care of the threat from within to one people, one family, one glorious nation, once or twice, I think, could be viewed as a coincidence. But he has channeled Hitler too many times for this to be coincidental. I think he's doing this purposefully. Now, there's a lot going on in the world, but still, that comment did not go unnoticed and predictably led to a lot of criticism. So you would think that Trump's spokesperson would try to clean up the mess that he made by sanitizing the message and trying to clarify his comments by making it seem more benign. But Trump's spokesperson basically doubled down and said the same thing that Trump said. The Washington Post reports Stephen Chung, a Trump campaign spokesperson, told The Post, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Chung later clarified that he meant to say their sad, miserable existence instead of their entire existence. Ah, okay. Well, I, for one, really appreciate the clarification, Stephen. It makes me feel so much better. But listen, we are talking about a presidential candidate who could actually win. That is threatening to root out his ideological opponents that he views as vermin. Now, as an electoral strategy, this feels pretty stupid because independents and normies who don't like Biden but were considering Trump might be turned off by that kind of rhetoric. They might find it off-putting. But the goal isn't to make an appeal to voters. Trump's goal here is to instill fear in voters. It's a tactic used throughout history by, you guessed it, dictators. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to historians who are telling us this. The Washington Post continues. The language is the language that dictators use to instill fear, said Timothy Naftali, a senior research scholar at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. When you dehumanize an opponent, you strip them of their constitutional rights to participate securely in a democracy because you're saying they're not human. That's what dictators do. Ruth Ben-Gayat, a historian at New York University, said in an email to the Washington Post that calling people vermin was used effectively by Hitler and Mussolini to dehumanize people and encourage their followers to engage in violence. So, in essence, he is laying the groundwork for mass violations of our civil rights 
and civil liberties. And if he is able to successfully dehumanize all of us and his political opponents or anyone that he deems communist or fascist, it's going to be much easier for the rest of the public who aren't demonized to accept our subjugation after he gets them to think of all of us as vermin rather than fellow Americans or human beings. And again, this is not speculation. He is literally mulling a plan to violently shut down protests using the military on day one. Nobody said that they're going to protest him yet. I assume that they would if he were to be elected, but he's already saying we're not going to let that happen. Now, I just want to repeat that. He is considering using our military that we fund that's supposed to protect us against us if we protest his inauguration. So obviously he doesn't care about free speech, but I think most people knew that. But his intent here is horrifying. So, I mean, this campaign is truly unprecedented in the sense that we have a political candidate who is running to be a dictator in a democratic election. And he's conspicuously channeling Hitler again and again and again. I mean, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little here, but I feel like this is something that maybe we should be concerned about. I think that if you're not worried at this point, you're not paying attention. When somebody is running for president who can win... And they say, I want to be a dictator and I'm coming for my political opponents. And that includes you leftists, you liberals. I think that we should pay attention to that because if we don't, we're doomed. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Big oh, hold, stop it. That wasn't a skit, my friends. You just watched Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen literally challenge Teamsters President Sean O'Brien to a fight during a Senate Help Committee hearing. Now, if you're wondering how it got to that point, well, it's because of tweets, specifically mean tweets that Sean O'Brien made after their last confrontation that hurt Mark Wayne Mullen's feelings. But before we get to that, let's watch the full exchange. Here the last time, him and I kind of had a back and forth. I uh, appreciate your demeanor today. It's quite different. But after you left here, you got pretty excited about the keyboard. In fact, you tweeted at me one, two, three, four, Five times. And let me read what the last one said. Um, it said, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Sir, I wish you was in the truck with me when I was building my plumbing company myself. And my wife was running the office because I sure remember working pretty hard and long hours. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quick the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your Pardon. solution? Every poll. Oh. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Chairman. it. Hold it. If Hold we on. can, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt for Congress. Let's not I don't make like it worse. Thugs and you, bullies. You have, and that's you have I don't like you because you just described yourself. Hold it. You have the mic. Yeah. You have time.
amazing. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed it, but when Mark Wayne Mullen was reading Sean O'Brien's tweets, he left out the best part. So you can see it printed out in full color here. But if you go to the actual tweet from O'Brien, he added a picture of Mullen standing on a platform during a debate to make himself seem taller with the hashtag little man syndrome. Now, that's in part why I think Mark Wayne Mullen was so mad. It seems like Sean O'Brien hit a bit of a nerve. And uh, listen, we love our short kings, but Mark Wayne Mullen is not a short king. He's a short cunt. And if you're clearly self-conscious about your height and you go out of your way to overcompensate by standing on platforms and trying to make yourself seem like a big tough guy, people are going to point that out and make fun of you for it. You're making yourself a target, Mark or Mark Wayne or whatever your stupid fucking name is. But let's watch some more from that exchange because it took Bernie Sanders a long time to actually regain order. All right, just statement. Then let's do this because I did challenge you and I accepted your challenge, and you went quiet. No, I didn't go quiet. I was. Oh, I was. No, no, you no, challenged no. me to a cage match, no, no, acting no. like a twelve-year-old schoolyard bully. Excuse Sorry, me. Hold, hold it. No, excuse me. I, have the I mic. will say. I will say it's exactly. Better than Mullen. I have the mic. You have questions on any economic issues, anything that's like, go for it. We're not here to talk about physical abuse. You brought. We're not him talking in. about. Of course, and, I did. And let me tell, let me show you his hearing because I want to. I want to expose this thug to who he is. And you're not pointing me. That's disrespectful. All right. I don't care about respecting you at all. I, respect I don't respect you respect. at all. So all right, hold let, it. Let me, let hold me. it. No. You don't want to be the most hold elite it, people. Please. Acted. Please. All right. This is a. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. This is a hearing to discuss economic issues so anytime any place no that's april, not april april is a charity event no that's not that's no, not no. no it's a he no. sir he said it and this is he is here to cut no parameters and what the questions can or cannot be asked now no you're not going to we're not going to be talking about yeah, physical confrontation oh this is about charity for a union charity because this, this is, is firefighters and do you have a question april, on his test april grow up april, will you please you have a question on his let's not you be said it you're an embarrassment you said it and i'm just simply answering it you hold it hold it senator mullen you made some charges Charges. Mr. Mr. O'Brien, do you want to respond to yeah, go the ahead, question? Please. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality of it is, you Except know, my challenge Mr. Tough Mr. Mullen, <laughs> tough guy. Answer, yeah. hold it. Answer the questions. All right, you all want, if I, he, he made a lot of statements, right? And his statements are fiction at best. Fiction, I read them. Can you hear What? Oh, answer the question, please. I can't understand him, to be honest with you. All right. He rambles so much. What was your question, actually? Well, you said I made a lot of statements. No, but what's your question? I don't understand your question. Could you repeat it? You said anytime, any place. What's your question? Accept the challenge. What challenge? You said anytime, any place. I'm accepting yours, so why don't you come What back? challenge? What challenge are you talking April about? April 30th. How about we do it for a charity at the Smoking Guns in Tulsa, Oklahoma? No, we're not what, going to be talking about physical confrontations here. You want to fight me? What do you say by any time, any place? Let's have coffee. Discuss our differences. Oh, oh that's what you said. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. All right. Well, let's say I don't have coffee. Let's I'd do it. To. All right. I'd love to. But do the, it. It's funny how you're back. Okay. Well, I don't back on anything. You did. You're right. the one. You're a 100. Senator uh, should be the most influential people in this country making changes. Senator you're focused on. Okay. You're Thank focused you. on debate that's not even relevant. You're an embarrassment. You're an embarrassment. an embarrassment to the state of This hearing is about the condition of the working class in America. 
You That's what we're talking about. You're the biggest thug here. You brought, you brought him in. All right, you're, you're the biggest thug. Even Look, your colleagues call you Why you do what you're doing, Senator Hassan? What a complete shit show. Listen, if I were Bernie Sanders in this situation, here's what I would do. I would just let them fight. If Mark Wayne Mullen wants to challenge this union boss to a duel and potentially get his ass beat, I would have no choice but to allow it. Now, the question is, what happened during their last exchange, which was referenced, that actually led to those tweets from Sean O'Brien that triggered Mark Wayne Mullen so thoroughly? Well, here's their exchange from the original hearing that took place in March. And as you're going to see, Mark Wayne Mullen was once again the instigator of that confrontation. I started with nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I started below nothing. And I started growing this little plumbing company with six employees to now we have over 300 employees. And back in 2009, you guys tried to unionize me. My guys were making money. They were getting paid more than the union halls were paying their plumbers. Our benefits were better. But because we started bidding jobs that were union jobs and winning those, Union pipe fitters decided they were going to come after us. They would show up at my house. They'd be leaning up against my trucks. I'm not afraid of a physical confrontation. In fact, sometimes I look forward to it. I'm, that's not my problem. But when you're doing that to my employees, and then when, they, when that didn't work, they started picketing our job site, saying, shame on Mullen. Shame on Mullen. For what? For what? Because we were paying higher wages? Because we had better benefits and we wasn't requiring them to pay your guys' absorbent salaries? You talk about CEOs that are making all this money? And what do you make, Mr. O'Brien? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I know what you make because in 2019, your salary was, um, what is this? 193000 I'm sure you've got some pay raises since then. Yeah, when I was a And the average UPS driver, the feeder driver, makes 35000 a year. That's and what do you bring That's to the inaccurate. Table? Hold on a second. That's inaccurate. State no, facts. I've got it right here. State facts. That's inaccurate. The average UPS feeder driver makes 35000 If you don't know your facts, then maybe you should. Oh, I, I know them because I negotiate the contract. So I say, I say one thing to you. What do you bring for that salary? What do I bring? Yeah, what, do you, what, do you, what job have you committed or have you, have you uh, uh, started? What job have you created? One job other than sucking the paycheck out of some other body, somebody else that you want to say that you're trying to provide because you're forcing them to pay dues? And no, then, we don't force them. Senator, you've asked the question. You're out of line, Let man. Actually, I have question. it, and don't tell me I'm out you of line. You are out of line. Don't tell me I'm out of line. Well, you, you, you frame, don't tell me. You I'm frame, frame, you frame, you frame Third, the statement you like tough guy. You shut your mouth yeah. because you don't know you're what you're talking about. You're going to tell me to shut my mouth? Yes, I did. Hold it. Hold it. Tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical. Senator, hold it. But don't sit there and tell me I'm out of line. Senator. You made a statement. You asked the question. I didn't ask the question. You did it. You did. I answered question. the question. You asked the question. About how well, much it was rhetorical. Let him answer. It was, it was a rhetorical Let, Well, question. you may think it's rhetorical. It Sounded was rhetorical. to me like a question. Let him answer the question. I'm not yielding my time to him. So if you're going to let me keep my time, that's fine. You'll have your time. Let him. You ask Your a question. question. He has so, a right to answer that. So after seeing Mullen's demeanor, you can understand why O'Brien made those tweets about him being a tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical confrontation. Sir, you're an adult. Act like it.
I mean, the animosity, it stems from Mark Wayne Mullen being vehemently anti-union, and that's not necessarily surprising considering he is literally a greedy CEO himself. He's worth an estimated $75 million and has defended billionaire CEOs like Howard Schultz of Starbucks, who was caught retaliating against employees trying to unionize. So as a CEO himself, he knows that unions threaten his wealth or did threaten his wealth when he was a CEO because they give workers more leverage. And that's bad for people who are greedy like Mark Wayne Mullen. Now, O'Brien pointed this out at the last hearing. And in response, Mullen was apoplectic. My salary, if you follow me around, I walk, I actually look at this building. I bet you I work more hours than you do. Twice that's, as many that's hours. That's impossible. But no, that is, that's true. Sir, you don't secondly, even know what hard work is. Secondly, if you want to follow yeah, my schedule, be, secondly, be, I'll do be it in a minute. Secondly, UPS feeder drivers, and you can quote uh, Carol Tomei, who quoted this, they make 93000 on the lower end. Some I of them make 150000 I said feeder drivers. Feeder drivers, tractor-trailer drivers. Some of them make $150,000 per year. Some of them do. And I don't disagree with that. Most of them make over, most four, of them, after you've been there four years. Most of them make over 1000 uh, okay. Most of them make over 100000 So reclaiming my time, I go back to the whole fact that, sir, you haven't created a job. We haven't? You haven't been there. You haven't. Sure we have. You haven't. Sure we have. Tell me one job that you created. What do you, what do you talk? Like, be specific. You're like, an employer. You no, we're not an employer. People? No, but you know it's funny. So, no, we, then, we create, then, then, we then create opportunity. Jobs. We create opportunity because we Sir, hold that's, that's we not, hold greedy CEOs like yourself not, accountable. You call me a greedy CEO. Oh yeah, you are. You want to attack my salary? I'll attack yours. You're, what did ahead. you make? What did you make when you owned your company? When I made my company, I kept my salary down at about uh, fifty thousand a year because I invested every penny into it. Okay, all right. You mean you hid money? No, I didn't hide. Oh, oh. hold on a second. Okay, call He said that's out of line. You said right, I was out of line. Even. We're he's, even. He's, he's, we're not even. We're not even close to being even. You I think know. it's smart? You think you're funny? No, you're you, not. You think you're funny? No, I never said. I did. I smile. You frame. You frame your opening. Hold on, hold on. Let's. You frame your opening statement. Saying you're a senator. Continue, senator. Please this continue is your statement. But, sir, this is, a, I, think, I think it's great that you're doing this because Me too. this shows their behavior on how they try to come in and no, organize I, I, a shop. No, it's and just, they say about intimidation, and it's not about intimidation. This, it's they show your behavior here. Yeah, stay on the issue. So that's the origin of this beef. Now, I'm assuming that Mark Wayne Mullen isn't still licking his wounds from that because he's mad that he was called a greedy CEO. He's probably still mad because this exchange led to a lot of scrutiny on Mark Wayne Mullen for being a greedy CEO. He wasn't just called a mean name. He was exposed as well because first and foremost, he was lying about his income. As Common Dreams explains, asked by O'Brien how much he made from his plumbing business, Mullen claimed, I kept my salary down at about 50 thousand dollars a year because i invested every penny into it but in 2013 then representative mullen reportedly pocketed more than six hundred thousand dollars from companies in violation of house ethics rules and federal laws limiting how much outside income members of congress are allowed to receive although mullen transferred ownership of the companies to his family he continued to serve as a board member and chief advertiser while raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars now second of all as sean o'brien pointed out on march 8th after their last exchange. For the record, Senator Mullen saw his reported assets balloon from a range of $7.3 million to $29.9 million at the end of 2020 to a range of $31.6 million to $75.6 million dollars. Now ask yourself, do you think that Mark Wayne Mullen shared that wealth with his employees who helped him build his plumbing company and make it as successful as it was? Do you think he cut them a check after he sold the company? I mean, of course not, as evidenced by his wealth doubling.
Now, he is the definition of a greedy CEO. That's what that is. And he doesn't like that O'Brien called him on that. He doesn't like that he is being perceived as part of the problem. He wants to make it seem as if unions are the problem, but his greed makes people want to join unions so that way they have protections from their greedy bosses who suck up all of the profits and leech off of their employees. But that's not the extent of his greed. He's not just a greedy CEO. He also has a fuck you, I got mine mentality because after his $1.4 million PPP loan was forgiven, he had the audacity to come out against $10,000 debt forgiveness for people with student loans. So when it comes to whether or not taxpayers should uh, pay for his PPP loan to be forgiven, well, that's fine. But when it comes to student debt, not acceptable. He is a genuine piece of shit. And he's also a hypocrite because Right Wing Watch pointed out that he said this about his own religious teaching. A lot of times when I speak, I also speak about my heart too. Something I've had to change about loving the people, love the call. You guys, many of you guys have heard me say that. And a lot of times I talk about that because I, I choose my attitude. There's a lot of times we can get angry about politics. We can get mad at someone. I heard someone back here a while ago when I was talking saying baloney. Because we get passionate about it. But, the Lord still calls us to love. And so even if you disagree with me, I still love you. I still, I still respect you. All right. I don't care about respecting you at all. I, respect I don't respect you I respect. at all. Well, I, for one, am completely shocked by this. You know, usually fundamentalist Christians are completely consistent about loving their neighbor and not judging others or hating others. So, I mean, this is really out of character here for an evangelical. Listen, he is a clown. And since that exchange that took place today, he's had a couple of hours to cool off. So what is he saying now? Is he toning it down? Is he apologizing? Well, as CNN's Manu Raja reports, he has no regrets. He called me out. I was just answering the call. Don't say something. You're not going to back up. It's that simple, Mullen said. He's a president of a union. I'm still a guy from Oklahoma. You're a millionaire from Oklahoma, dude. Mullen said he was raised different when asked about the propriety of settling disputes physically. Don't say something stupid like that unless you're going to truly back it up, Mullen told us. He's a thug. He's been running at the mouth forever. Mullen did say he considers it a done deal and he's willing to get a coffee with the witness. And he pushed back at Senator Bernie Sanders admonishing him at the hearing. I'd hate to be that guy some days, Mullen said of Sanders. So it's over. It's a done deal, as he says, which makes sense because you can only humiliate yourself so much before realizing it's time to shut the fuck up before I look any more foolish than I already do. Now, as Ali Mastal put it, Republicans are an entire party that never learned to use their words and truer words have never been spoken. And it's not only true because of Mullen's behavior today, but because of another altercation that allegedly got physical with the Republican because NPR correspondent Claudia Grizel reports have never seen this on Capitol Hill. While talking to Representative Tim Burchett after the GOP conference meeting, former Speaker McCarthy walked by his detail and McCarthy shoved Burchett. Burchett lunged towards me. I thought it was a joke. It was not. And a chase ensued. Now we're going to hear from Tim Burchett in a moment who's going to recount the events and tell us about the chase that ensued afterwards. But just for some additional context, Tim Burchett is one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy. So I think that says a lot. But nonetheless, here's what he had to say. And at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back and there was there was Kevin. And um, and I, I, for a minute, I was kind of, what the heck just happened? And then I, 
Um, you know, I, I chased after him, of course. He's a, as I've stated many times, he's a he's a bully with $17 million in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that when you're a kid would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just, you know, he, he uh, from behind, that kind of stuff. It, you know, that's not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. We, we if we have a problem with somebody, I'm gonna look them in the eye and, and talk to them. Okay, so he walked down the hallway, hit you in his el- with his elbow. Yeah, you, you then- can you can go on Claudia's Twitter account. It it, it pretty much um, or X account. It, right. it, it it's it's very accurate. But, okay, so then just explain. So you chased him. What, what do you mean you chased? Well, him? I just ran after him. I was like, what the heck? You know, why'd you do that? You know, because it was a. Uh, like I said, it, if you ever been hitting the kidneys, it's a little little different. You don't have to hit very hard to cause a little bit of pain, a lot of pain, and and so I and he just, of course, um, as he always did, does he just uh, denies it or uh, blames somebody else or something, you know? And it was just a little heated, but I just backed off because there wasn't any. I saw no reason. I wasn't gaining anything from it, and then everybody saw it, so it didn't really matter. Like he responded to you. Yeah, yeah, he just acted like, you know, what are you talking about, you know, who are you, to, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, I think that's that's symptomatic of the problems that he, he's had in his short tenure as speaker. And were you face-to-face when you had this interaction? Yeah, yeah but there's security detail, and I get it. They had to, they were doing their job, so it wasn't exactly like he didn't, he wouldn't turn around and face me. He he kept scurrying, trying to keep people between me and him. And then, so, where did he, where you yell, were you? I just let it go at that point. It wasn't. Were you yelling? Uh, he, he was, yeah, I raised my voice to him. I thought it was appropriate. And you know, I just don't expect a guy who was at one time three steps away from the White House to sucker, su- hit you with a sucker punch in the, in the in the hallway. And did he raise his voice back to you? Yeah, just that high-pitched kind of thing, I, I believe, and that was about it. And did you walk into his office? How did this end? No, he just kept on walking down the hall. I don't know where his office is now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, he had the, his detail and his posse, so to speak, was with him. So did his detail try to stop you? Do what? Did his detail try yeah, to stop you? The detail kind of got, they, they, one guy got, got between us there towards the end, but it, it, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking to knock him out or anything. I just wanted to let him know I, 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 I know it was him. I mean, this is middle school level bully shit. It's just so ridiculous that the former Speaker of the House is behaving in this way. And I I believe Burchett here. So McCarthy allegedly shoved a fellow Republican, presumably in retaliation for his vote to oust him as Speaker, more than a month after that happened. So McCarthy is still holding a grudge and presumably isn't going to let it go anytime soon. Now, as Burchett stated, when he confronted McCarthy, he denied that it happened. Now, predictably, when McCarthy spoke to reporters, he also denied it, but you can just see it in his face that he is completely full of shit. I hit him in a kidney. HC5, you're all down there, right? Not a very big hallway. So I'm walking out. You could talk to Bruce Westman, because I actually called him after you guys reported something. I said, did I hit somebody? Bruce Westman and I were walking out, and I guess a reporter was interviewing Burchard or something. I guess our shoulders hit, because Burchard runs up to me after. I didn't know what he was talking about. Some reporters asked me. I did not run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. I did not shoot anything like that. You didn't shove him. No. I, we're walking through. You you were at HC5, right? You guys line up along the way there. It was Bruce Wester and I walking out. He must have been interviewing someone. I didn't know it was him or something. I guess our elbows hit as I walked by. I didn't punch anybody. Did he but, 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 no. but, yeah, well, he. I guess it happened because when I was walking back further, honestly, somebody was interviewing me or talking to me, and he comes running up like, why, why, why did you... 
hit me or something like that. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even know something transpired. But reporters or witnesses said it looked like you, yeah. there was plenty of room for you to walk and that you intentionally hit him. There is, okay, not a place. Show me a reporter who saw that. Ask call Bruce Grisales Westerman. Okay, well, well ask Bruce that. Westerman. No, I did not go up. If I hit, if I would hit somebody, they would know I hit him. He said he was in pain that you hit him oh, so hard. come on was, now. That's what he said. That, that's awful. Matt Gaines has put a... Congressman Gaines Singer wrote that you pushed him twice while he was in Congress in the chamber. When have I pushed him? Kinzinger said he was in the back railing once and you elbowed him and pushed you him. You said Gates. Kinzinger. Oh, no, I don't, know, I don't know about Kinzinger. Can Congressman Gates, though, is filing or uh, committing, submitting a complaint to the Ethics Committee oh, over good. this this issue. Do you have any response to Congressman Gates? No, I, I think ethics is a good place for Gates to be. <laughs> so, I mean, Burchett said that you're the kind of guy, this is his words, as a kid, would throw a rock and then go hide under his mom's skirt. That was his exact words. What's your response? Yeah, I just don't believe him at all. And the problem is that reporters witness this too. So it's not just Burchett's words against McCarthy's, it's the word of Burchett and reporters against a notorious liar like McCarthy's. And to make matters worse, this is not the first time that he's been accused of this because they referenced Kinzinger's accusations as well. And he detailed this in his book, detailed how he was shoved not once, but twice by McCarthy allegedly. So this was shared on Twitter by Manu Raju of CNN. And in his book, Kinzinger alleges, quote, once I was standing in the aisle that runs from the floor to the back of the chamber. As McCarthy passed with his security man and some of his boys, he veered towards me, hit me with his shoulder, and then kept going. Going. Now, he later adds, another time I was standing at the rail that curves around the back end of the last row of seats in the chamber as he shoulder checked me again. I thought to myself, what a child. Now, if you want to read the full passage, Kinzinger explains that he was previously one of the boys. He was part of the cool kids club, but then became an outcast after he condemned Donald Trump, which is when he says McCarthy decided to start physically assaulting him, shoving him. So, yeah, this is kind of what McCarthy does. It's his M.O., and the only reason why he probably hasn't shoulder-checked Gates yet is because Gates has a much bigger mouth and would likely tattle on McCarthy to Daddy Trump. But you know he wants to. Now, the reason why Republicans are violent and they're unable to use their words, as Ellie Mastal put it, is because they have the emotional maturity of toddlers, and sometimes they're unable to contain their emotions, and it just spills over into the public, and they look like babies shitting their pants. So I fully expect this to keep happening, and I admittedly kind of want it to happen more, especially when it comes to Republicans shoulder-checking each other. I'm trying to use my words very carefully here on YouTube so I don't violate the TOS, because these people are dickheads, and I want to see these dickheads duke it out. So I say, if they want to fuck around, let them find out. But that's just me. I want to play a clip from a guy called Bassem Youssef. He was known as the Arab John Stewart. Uh, and I interviewed him recently about the, the war. And he said this about you. The saddest thing that I saw is the people that were in so much support of Israel are anti-Semite themselves. MTG. MTG, MTG uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. You know, she said like, oh, those are, I send my aides and they took pictures of the protesters. Basically, she's surveilling protesters. And uh, Mary Taylor Greene is very known for a very famous post in 2018 where she blamed 
the California wildfires on a Jewish space laser gun. You just watched Marjorie Green get confronted with comedian Bassem Yusuf's criticism of right-wing supporters of Israel like her. Now, in that clip that Pierce was playing for her, Bassem went on to make a broader point about this double standard by supporters of Israel who will conflate any and all criticism of Israel's government with anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, evangelicals like Marjorie Taylor Green, who literally spread anti-Semitic lies about Jewish space lasers, get a pass because they support the actions of Israel's government. So if you don't say anything about their use of white phosphorus or collective punishment or indiscriminate bombings in Gaza, you can be as anti-Semitic as you want, and they won't say anything. It's, it's very disgusting. Now, to be clear, this isn't just a Marjorie Green problem. This is a broader trend with the Support Israel movement. And I want to show you what I mean before we get to her response. So thousands marched on DC in support of Israel's genocide in Gaza. And it featured a diverse group of psychopaths from Democrats like Van Jones, Chuck Schumer, and John Fetterman to Christo-fascists like Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, who said calls for a ceasefire were, quote, outrageous. And it even featured evangelical pastor John Hagee, who once claimed that Hitler was sent by God and even blamed Jewish people for the Holocaust saying their disobedience towards God led to their persecution. That's a little bit of a snapshot of the people who participated in this rally, along with Democratic Party leader Hakeem Jeffries. Now, those comments from John Hagee were so detestable, obviously so, that even Republican John McCain rejected his endorsement in 2008. But at this rally, John Hagee, an anti-Semite, was welcomed with open arms including by John McCain's daughter, who was there with her friend Tulsi Gabbard, who purports to be anti-war, but she's there in solidarity with a government carpet-bombing Gaza right now, which is interesting to me. And John Fetterman, an American senator who draped himself in an Israeli flag and condemned his own Democratic colleague for supposed anti-Semitism, had fuck all to say about being in the presence of an actual anti-Semite like John Hagee. I guess it doesn't matter, because he supports Israel's war crimes, so... It doesn't matter that he said Hitler was sent by God. It doesn't matter that he blamed Jewish people for the Holocaust. What matters is that he's there showing support for Israel as they bomb Gaza to smithereens, including bomb hospitals and ambulances and refugee centers and schools. Doesn't matter because he supports that. But this is what Bassem Yusuf was talking about. This deep level of unseriousness from supporters of Israel who weaponize claims of anti-Semitism to shut down criticism of the government of Israel, yet allow people like John Hagee and Marjorie Green to be openly and explicitly anti-Semitic, but they're welcomed into this movement. Now, Marjorie Green shamelessly accused others of anti-Semitism after she literally blamed Jewish people for wildfires. So, with that being said... You kind of know the context. You know what Yusuf was referring to. I have a full video in his comments there if you want to watch that. But this is her response to Bassem Yusuf calling out her dumbass comments about a Jewish space laser. You did, didn't you? Because I've read that post. I went and got it and I read it. Uh, November 17, 2018, you posted a long thing on Facebook that was just complete gobbledygook. I mean, you made out that yeah, the, that's the why Rothschilds I wrote this book. and a, I talk uh, about Jewish space lasers. Do you admit in that that was a lunatic? That's something I never said. 
No, excuse oh, me, Pierce. Yeah. I never said that phrase. That was a lie about me. If you read my original Facebook post, I never said it. And that's why I had to write this book, because people like you and whoever that guy was, was he sounds like one of the trolls in my social media, yeah. uh, attacking me and calling me names when he's never met me. I, um, I'm not anti-Semitic at all. I support Israel, and I am outraged at Hamas attacking Innocent Israeli citizens, yeah, women, Marjorie, children, I'm not calling slaughtering you, babies. I'm not calling you anything. I'm just saying that you did post this uh, crazy post, basically alleging I, that... You know, I know, no, you know, the media lied about it, and that's why I wrote I've my book, Piers, because I'm setting the record straight. And I hope people order my book at mtgbook.com. It's a <laughs> well, great a read. People plug. need to know exactly who I am, who I am and what I really believe in. It's a very good for. it's a very good plug for the book, but you did suggest in this post, which I've read very carefully, you did suggest that the California wildfires at the time had been started by PG and E in conjunction with the Rothschilds using a, a, a space laser in order to clear room for a high speed rail project. They're your words, not mine. Well, you know, people have twisted my words nonstop, and I guess that's what you're going to continue to do. But we're working hard in America anything, to straighten out our problems. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're doing a great job of it, Piers, and that's what you and your colleagues do all the time. Marjorie, I just don't. I, I don't handle have, it. I don't deal with it, and I cast it to the Marjorie, side. Marjorie, I have um, your, You know, there's a lot of issues here. happening that we could talk about. I'm going to we come could to those. Talk about, but before we before okay. we move on, though, you have to just accept what you wrote yourself, don't you? You deleted it. You obviously you were embarrassed well, by it. Well, that would be like that would be like me asking you to accept the fact that you defended prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, but never say anything about January 6th defendants who are having their rights abused and are rotting away in solitary confinement here in our country. Yeah. So of course she's not owning up to it or addressing the main point that Yusuf is making, but you can tell that she was embarrassed by seeing this criticism because after this interview, she went on Twitter and took a shot at Bassem Yusuf, writing, I just went on Pierce Morgan and he asked me what I think of this guy. I've never even heard of him, but he sure looks interesting. Now, first of all, that's not what Pierce Morgan asked. He didn't just play some random clip and ask you, what do you think of this comedian? He was criticizing you in particular, but you didn't engage with his criticism. And furthermore, she shared a screenshot of him where I guess that's supposed to make him look crazy. But he is literally a comedian making a funny face to mock people like you and your unseriousness. But by all means, Marjorie, please pick a fight with the comedian. I'm sure it'll end in his total humiliation and not yours. But I wanna go back to Yusuf's original point. Supporters of Israel's government are so thirsty for US support as public opinion turns against them that they will welcome anyone, including actual anti-Semites into their movement like Marjorie Green and John Hagee, all so that way they can say, look at all of these people who support what we're doing in Gaza. It's a just cause. What we're doing is not wrong. Those who criticize us are wrong. Now, that's not the only double standard, because while supporters of Palestinian human rights get blacklisted and lose their jobs, you also have celebrities like Sarah Silverman, who defended collective punishment against Palestinian civilians, go on to guest host the Daily Show, two weeks later. Like, can you imagine if somebody defended collective punishment against Israelis? It would be wrong, justifiably so, and they would likely get canceled. But if you say it about Palestinians, well, we've dehumanized them, so 
have at it. Say what you want. We don't view them as human beings. Now, on top of that, you also have Republicans like Max Miller and Brian Mast literally advocating for violence against Palestinians, while the only Palestinian American in Congress was censured for saying from the river to the sea. And she added, she does not mean genocide. She means freedom for Palestinians, but yet wasn't enough. They censured her, but not Brian Mast or Max Miller, who said, we're going to turn Gaza into a parking lot. Listen, the longer that supporters of Israel refuse to engage with this double standard and perpetuate it, the more unserious they look. I mean, as if supporting a genocide wasn't discrediting enough, but I mean, the people who don't know any better, they see these contradictions. They're too obvious to miss. And while we're on the subject of double standards, there's been this hyper-focus on fringe supporters of Palestinian human rights who also advocated support for Hamas. Now, this includes some DSA members in New York and BLM Chicago after October 7th, who posted an image of a paraglider saying we stand with Palestine. And listen, I unequivocally condemn that, even if it's a small minority of people who are advocating for Palestinians. But the question that I want to ask is, is anyone who's supporting the actions of the Israeli government going to condemn any of this? For example, Quote, let Israel finish the job. I mean, after 10,000 plus Palestinians are dead, including 4,000 children, how can you interpret this as anything but an explicit call for genocide? Where is the outrage? Where is the condemnations? Now, here's more genocidal signs at the pro-Israel rally. Quote, many Gazan civilians are Hamas in training. There is no proportionate response to Hamas. Civilians who praise the slaughter of Jews are not innocent. Well, by that same token, could you say that any Israeli who praises the slaughter of Palestinians are also not innocent? I mean, these people don't understand how hypocritical what they're saying is. Now, here's my favorite. From the river to the sea, Israel is what you'll see. Now, I was told that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free was an explicit call for genocide. But I'm assuming that this person who is part of a crowd that chanted no ceasefires advocating for a peaceful one state solution with equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, look. Zero condemnation, zero outrage, nothing for that. In the same way that Republicans like Brian Mast and Max Miller can get away with genocidal rhetoric, supporters of Israel, they can do the same too, I guess. But the reason why this doesn't feel like a double standard to them is because supporters of Israel's genocide don't actually view Palestinians as human beings. So if you think about it from their perspective, how can Israel be guilty of a genocide if their targets aren't actual human beings? These are animals. I mean, this is what Israel has reiterated time and again. So if you're not killing human beings, then it's not a genocide. I mean, this is why the condemnations of genocidal rhetoric have been asymmetric. It's because one side does not view the other side as human beings. And to be clear, violence and genocidal rhetoric against Israelis, along with support for Hamas, that's all indefensible too, and I condemn it in the strongest possible terms. I condemn the October 7th attack on Israel. It was horrific. But the reason why it's so easy for me to do that is because I view Israelis as human beings, where supporters of Israel can't say the same about Palestinians, hence why they're standing in solidarity with Israel even after 4,000 Palestinian children have been killed. It's just so disgusting and monstrous 
And the fact that Democrats like John Fetterman and Hakeem Jeffries are aligning with Mike Johnson and Marjorie Greene in solidarity of supporting Israel kind of tells you everything you need to know about the moral bankruptcy of this movement. But getting back to Marjorie Greene, she couldn't respond to Youssef's double standard because she had no response. Instead, she decided to change the subject and talk about January 6th rioters. Now, that was a very bad idea, as you're going to see, because Pierce Morgan anticipated this and challenged her on that as well. And after she couldn't take the heat there, she decided to switch back to the subject of Israel again. We can't allow this just to just to be gone, you know, just to let it go. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president because he did not win this election. It's being stolen and the evidence is there. The so there can be no peaceful transfer of power. So what's the opposite of peace? That's why we objected, Piers. That's yeah, why that's we why, objected. And, and it's that's a why, Marjorie, a gigantic um, mob that of... I have as a member of Congress. Okay, but let me make you know, my point. There was a law firm that tried to take me off the ballot, and they were laughed out of the courtroom let in Georgia. Let me make my point. And you were giving their talking points. I can't tell you how much people in Georgia would think Let me give you ridiculous. my talking point, which is that a huge mob of people, many of whom were violent, crashed into the capital to try and thwart democracy. Wait, because, do you mean like... Because people you mean like, like you, Marjorie... Hamas people like rioters? you said two things. You mean like the pro-Hamas no, no, rioters? No, no, no. I'm talking about January 6th. That came in and occupied our Margaret, capital Margaret, on uh, October 18th. Marjorie, that Rashida Tlaib Marjorie, herself led. answer my question. No, wait, we're, we're in 2023, Piers. Marjorie, answer we my question. We just had a pro-Hamas mob You've written a book in which you talk about these the things. Okay. And Rashida Tlaib Can I ask you a question? Wait, I want to talk about Rashida Tlaib in Israel again. Just, that was amazing. Now, if you watch the full clip, which I'll link to down below, by the way, that goes on for a while and he never gets a straight answer from her. And for the record, I have to say that Pierce Morgan is somebody who I don't like. I think he is a deeply unserious political hack. But having said that, though, I did enjoy him pushing back against her lies about the 2020 election in this particular clip because she came on with the expectation that this was going to be a softball interview where she could freely promote her book. I mean, she's a right winger. Pierce Morgan is a right winger, but he didn't give her the opportunity to do that. So if you watch the full thing, she goes on to try to shoehorn in a plug for her book wherever she had the chance to do that. And you know she's desperate because she's even lobbying The View to bring her on so she can promote her shitty book, writing on Twitter, hey, The View, you had Hillary Clinton on this week and Rachel Maddow recently. Are you scared to have me on? After all, there is a view outside of New York City. I talk about the women of The View in my book. Just stop. Nobody wants to read your shitty ghostwritten book. But the reason why she's so desperate is because certain retailers like Hudson Books won't actually be carrying her book. Now, what I love about this particular element of the story is that as Newsweek reports, this has sparked allegations of censorship from people like Trump Jr. And I just love this so much because the pro-book banning party is now crying censorship because retailers won't carry their books. But I mean, I thought that you said banning books was good. What if these retailers were worried that her book would groom children? Have you ever thought about that, Republicans? Of course not. <laughs> Look, they are clowns. But at least Democrats like John Fetterman and Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer are able to find common ground with these Republicans on the issue of genocide. It's so heartwarming to me to know that our politicians are able to come together and reach across the aisle in their support of bombing children in Gaza. It's just amazing. What a great country we live in. Love it so much here. Definitely not a dystopia. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers 
come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators, and left the children to die on the cold floor. You just watched a portion of gut-wrenching testimony from the early 90s from a 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl who claims that she witnessed Iraqi soldiers actually remove babies from incubators and left them on the floor to die. That testimony really spoke to the barbarity of Saddam Hussein's regime, and that testimony was used to manufacture consent for then-President George H.W. Bush's Gulf War. The problem, however, is that it was a hoax, and she was lying. Nayira's testimony was rebroadcast across the country and marked a turning point in public opinion on going to war. President George H.W. Bush repeatedly cited her claims. And they had kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. Three months after Nayira testified, President George H.W. Bush launched the invasion of Iraq. But it turned out Nayira's claims weren't true. No human rights group or news outlet could confirm what she said. It also turned out Nayira was not just any Kuwaiti teenager. She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States, Saad Nasir al-Sabah. She had been coached by the public relations firm Hill & Knowlton, which was working for the Kuwaiti government. Now, in a 1992 write-up about that lie in The New York Times, John MacArthur explained, Amnesty International believed the tale and its ill-considered validation of the charges likely influenced the seven U.S. senators who cited the Saurian speeches supporting the January 12th resolution authorizing war. Now, the reason why we're talking about this is because the thought of babies being taken out of incubators to be left to die was so appalling to politicians, rightfully so, that they felt compelled to take action immediately. But fast forward to today, and babies are actually being taken out of incubators. And this time, it's because there's no electricity to maintain the incubators. And the difference now, compared to the 90s, is that politicians don't feel compelled to take action. Most still refuse to call for a ceasefire despite being fully aware that they are effectively complicit with this. The ground operations are right at the gates of Al-Shifa Hospital right now. Hospital officials are saying there is fighting literally in the blocks surrounding the hospital. Shifa at this point is completely surrounded uh, by Israeli forces, Israeli tanks, and there are Israeli drones overhead that anybody who tries to step outside uh, the buildings, there are several buildings that make up the complex that is the Shifa hospital, anybody stepping on outside uh, comes under fire. Now, there are 20,000 people uh, taking refuge in the hospital itself, in addition to the 400 patients that doctors are treating. The World Health Organization is now saying Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest, most important medical facility in the Gaza Strip, is effectively no longer functional. There is no running water. There is no electricity. There is the bare minimum of medical operations going on at this point. There are some 600 patients inside the hospital, Andrea, but no case is more urgent than the dozens of prematurely born babies who were being held in the neonatal unit there. The electricity is gone. Those newborns, some of them younger than this war itself, 
have been taken out of their incubators. They were, last we heard, being held in the surgery unit at Al-Shifa Hospital. Dozens of tiny, tiny Gazans on two beds being kept together, swaddled to try to keep them warm. In some cases, medical officials respirating them with their hands, trying to keep them breathing, basically doing everything they can to keep them alive. Hospital officials tell us at least three of these newborns have died so far. And I spoke earlier to Dr. Shireen Abed. She is the former head of neonatal care at Al-Shifa Hospital. She says she has no doubt in her mind that more of them are going to die if there is not a solution found urgently. And in addition to that, there are dozens of bodies of people have, who have been killed that are essentially piled up outside the hospital, but they can't be buried because of the fighting that's going on around it. And Andrea, this is a scenario we are seeing playing out all across the Gaza Strip right now. The key humanitarian facilities are running out of their last drops of fuel. UNRWA, the United Nations, says they are going to have to close their humanitarian operations in the next 48 hours if they do not get more fuel in. It is genuinely difficult to watch. Now, I stitched together reporting from CNN and MSNBC because they both provide us with different details that paint the same bleak picture. And I didn't want it to be too redundant by showing you two different clips, but that's what you saw. Now, if the mere testimony of babies being pulled from incubators in the 90s galvanized action by U.S. lawmakers, you would think that actually seeing pictures of babies would do the same thing. I mean, they're real. We can see them. And doctors themselves from Al-Shifa Hospital have explained that the situation is a catastrophe. And as the fighting takes place, they are forced to stay because if they leave, that means they're abandoning their patients. They're leaving these babies to die. So that means they're sitting ducks. They could be bombed next. So let's listen to the doctors and what they have to say. On the fourth floor, and also there's a sniper attack four patients from the inside the hospital. One of them has a gunshot directly in his neck and he has a quadriplegia and the other one, he has a gunshot in the abdomen. Some of the people which actually go outside the hospital, they want to go to the south, they bump them also, they bump the family. We can see actually the smoking, uh, the smoke around the hospital. They hit everything around the hospital and they hit the hospital many times. Situation, as I said before, very, very bad. Why don't you go with your family south? And, and if I go, who treats my patients? They are not animals. They have the right to receive proper health care. You think I went to medical school and for my postgraduate degrees for a total of 14 years. So I think only about my life and not my patients. I'm asking you, ma'am, do you think this is the reason why I went to med school? To think only about my life. This is so, not the reason why I became a doctor. Now, unfortunately, that was the very last interview from Dr. Hamam Alo before he was killed in his home with his father by an IDF airstrike. 
And quote, his mother, who is also a doctor, Dr. Haifa al-Saraj, is trapped with other relatives, including children, in the vicinity of the house. They are unable to move, and any attempt to move comes under heavy Israeli fire. One relative is also currently alive and trapped under rubble. They have been in touch with the Red Cross, who are unable to evacuate them. The Israeli Defense Forces need to cease fire in the Abu Hasira neighborhood so they can be safely evacuated. This devastation is incomprehensible. And the Al-Shifa hospital is not the only hospital that is getting bombed. Now, guess what Israel's excuse is? Well, Hamas, they're at the hospital. They're using these patients as human shields. It doesn't fucking matter. You don't get to bomb hospitals ever. And it's not just patients who are at risk there. There are people in shelter at these hospitals. So this is one of those situations where the destruction is so catastrophic that it's almost difficult to fathom. Like, it's hard to even picture it as you see it. Like, I kind of just go numb. That's how bad it is. And I'm sure you all feel the same way. And Dr. Hamam Alo died a hero because he refused to abandon his patients. He could have evacuated to the south, although that's not a sure bet that he'd be safe, but he could have been with his family. But he said, I'm not going to abandon my patients. And he died in his home, by the way. And even though it is predictably what we all expected would happen, even though we all knew it would come to this, where doctors are being killed and babies are literally dying because the hospitals no longer have any electricity, American politicians still can't find it upon themselves to utter the words ceasefire. Now, President Biden was asked about this in particular, especially considering that the blood of those babies is on his hands as well, and his response was just awful, predictably, and pathetic, as you're going to see, and his body language really says it all. The hospital in Gaza, the hospital Kelly was in Gaza, in. have you expressed any specific concerns to Israel on that, sir? Well, uh, you know, I uh, have not been reluctant in expressing my concerns what's going on, um, and it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. Uh, we're in contact and we're with, uh, with the Israelis. Also, there is an effort to uh, uh, take this pause to deal with the release of prisoners. And that's being negotiated as well with the Qataris that are engaged. And uh, so I remain somewhat hopeful. But the hospital must be protected. Well, it's a little late for that, don't you think? Look, he knows what he's doing. You could see it in his body language. He's mumbling. His head is down. He's trying to find some way to express concern while avoiding the elephant in the room, which is he's complicit. That's his fault there, too. And the U.S. State Department won't officially acknowledge Israel's war crimes, despite them saying we're going to do collective punishment, despite ample evidence that they are using white phosphorus. The State Department is still officially saying that there's no evidence of war crimes. Although there's a lot of heroes within the State Department who are brave enough to not toe the line and call out that bullshit. Axios reports an internal State Department dissent memo accuses President Biden of spreading misinformation on the Israel-Hamas war and alleges that Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza, according to a copy of the memo obtained by Axios. The scathing five-page memo organized by a junior diplomat who has suggested 
suggested on social media that Biden's support of Israel has made him complicit in genocide in Gaza offers a rare look at the raw divisions within the Biden administration over the Israel-Hamas war. The memo, signed by 100 State Department and USAID employees, urges senior U.S. officials to reassess their policy toward Israel and demand a ceasefire in Gaza, where more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, according to Gaza's Hamas-controlled health ministry. And by the way, of the 11,000 Palestinians killed so far, more than 4,100 of them have been children. Absolutely barbaric. And yet, politicians are still too afraid to call for a ceasefire. I mean, they are despicable. Now, this memo from the State Department comes almost a month after HuffPost initially reported that a mutiny was brewing within the State Department, specifically over the Biden administration's handling of this situation. And uh, I guess now it looks like the chickens are finally coming home to roost for Joe Biden. Now, due to massive public pressure, as well as a significant drop in the polls, well, Biden's administration has been forced to at least adjust course a little bit. So he's managed to work out a four-hour pause per day of fighting, and he's also feigned more concern over innocent Palestinians. But yet, the administration recently reiterated that they're still not drawing any red lines for Israel, and a ceasefire is not on the table. And that seemingly still hasn't changed even after learning about babies dying due to a lack of electricity. And even when he was asked about the hospital... If you'll notice, he did not condemn Israel. He says, yes, I want to protect the hospital, still won't condemn Israel, still won't call out their war crimes. And we're all going to give them more money? I mean, what is happening here? It's just our politicians are awful. And it's not just Biden. I mean, the pro-life Republicans who claim to care about life don't even pretend to care at all about dying babies in Gaza. And it's not just the far right, it's also the left. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, even though they're much better at performatively expressing sympathy than other politicians, I mean, they're not even calling for a ceasefire. In fact, most politicians are still telling us to go fuck ourselves when we ask for a ceasefire. John Fetterman, for example, aka Kirsten Sinema in a hoodie, was literally waving an Israeli flag to antagonize protesters calling for a ceasefire, and they were even arrested for civil disobedience, and that was him right there antagonizing them. What a piece of shit. And to be clear, there's no excuse for any politician. I don't care who you are. If you're on the left or the right, there's no excuse for any of you. Because it's not like you don't know what we want. They've seen the protests that we've all seen. They've looked at the same polls that we've looked at. And on top of that, they're feeling the heat because congressional staffers are overwhelmed with phone calls of people saying, please support a fucking ceasefire. What are you doing? HuffPost reports. Staffers from more than two dozen Democratic offices say they are receiving an unprecedented number of calls and emails demanding for members to support a ceasefire, an onslaught for which their caucus was wholly unprepared. Following the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas militants, up to three weeks passed and the death toll from Israel's retaliatory strikes reached the thousands before many offices even formulated an official response. Let it go to voicemail was the prevailing guidance in several offices, one staffer said. The yawning mismatch between voters and members sentiments on this issue strikes many staffers as outrageous. Quote, this building is not listening, said one Democratic aide. I've never seen such a disconnect between where voters and constituents are and where Congress is, and that's saying something because there's always a disconnect. So it's not like they can't hear us. They do. 
they're just choosing to ignore our calls for a ceasefire, which makes them all complicit, too, as far as I'm concerned. And every single politician who doesn't call for a ceasefire is a scumbag. But the one that still bugs me the most is got to be Bernie Sanders. Right. He might not be as antagonistic as someone like John Fetterman, but I expect more from him. In fact, two years ago, he called for a ceasefire. But all of a sudden, he refuses to do the same thing, even though the situation is exponentially worse. And he presumably isn't going to call for a ceasefire, regardless of how bad the humanitarian disaster gets. And this is the same fucking guy who told all of us that we need a political revolution with thousands of Americans in the streets demanding recalcitrant politicians listen to us. And after tens of thousands of people have been in the streets every single weekend across the country, in cities across the world, after protesters literally occupied his fucking office demanding that he call for a ceasefire, he still won't do it. He's resisting the grassroots, ignoring our calls. It's just so frustrating. But in the end, this really isn't about any one politician as frustrating as it may be to see them be either uh, just antagonistic towards us or ignore us. This is about our entire political system. And this moment should be a wake up call for everyone. It's an indictment of our entire political system, because if politicians won't do the bare minimum and call for a ceasefire like their constituents want after 4,100 children, including babies, have fucking died. That is not a democracy. That's not a democracy. So every politician refusing to call for a ceasefire shouldn't get a second of peace until they call for one. So keep calling them. Keep protesting them. If you see them in public, politely confront them. Keep the pressure up on Republicans, Democrats, even progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, because if they're going to pretend to not hear us, we're not going to make it any easier for them to ignore us. A couple of weeks ago, progressive members of Congress directly called out APAC after enduring years of abuse and attacks from this right-wing interest group. Now, in response, APAC has vowed to crush all of them for daring to speak up and defend themselves. Now, if you missed it, I put up a lengthy video about this on November 2nd, which I'll link to down below, where I detail progressive criticisms of APAC, but primarily they call attention to the group's support for far-right insurrectionist Republicans, repeated attacks on women of color in Congress, and also incitements of hate and violence against Muslim Congresswomen like Ilhan Omar by running ads with their face next to Hamas rockets, which of course inspired death threats predictably afterwards. Now, I just wanna give you one example of the kind of Islamophobic ads that they run to defame Muslim members of Congress. So on June 7th of 2021, Ilhan Omar tweeted this, we must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the US, Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. I asked Secretary Blinken where people are supposed to go for justice. Now that is not a controversial statement. It's normal if you're a sane person. All she's doing is literally condemning human rights abuses regardless of who perpetrates them, be it governments or terrorist groups, it's all bad. And she literally condemned Hamas in that tweet. 
But do you want to know how APAC responded to that? Well, they ran this ad implying that she was a terrorist sympathizer, which reads, stand with America, stand against terrorists. For Ilhan Omar, there is no difference between America and the Taliban, between Israel and Hamas, between democracies and terrorists. And in response, she predictably received multiple death threats. Days later, she wrote, every time I speak out on human rights, I am inundated with death threats. Here is one we just got. Now, I'm not going to play the audio of this disgusting hate speech for you or read it, but you can see what it says. They're using racial slurs against her, calling Muslims terrorists. Now, her senior advisor also points out that the rhetoric that APAC uses in these ads is similar to the language used in the death threats that she receives, which suggests that APAC is inspiring the threats against her life. So after putting up with this bullshit and abuse for years, they finally fought back. And because they dared to defend themselves against APAC, and more importantly, speak up on behalf of civilians in Gaza being indiscriminately murdered by Israel, well, APAC is now vowing to destroy them. As Alexander Salmon of Slate explains, one of the biggest, bitterest, and most expensive political battles of the 2024 election cycle has emerged. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, one of the most powerful, best-funded influence operations in Washington, is planning to go all out to knock the famed squad, the small group of highly visible and popular progressive legislators of color, most of them women, out of office. APAC wants to make the statement this cycle that no one is safe from their wrath, that if you speak out, you can be targeted no matter how popular or how many cycles of incumbent you are, said Connor Farrell, president of the progressive fundraising group Left Rising, in a phone call. It's extremely audacious. Close watchers now expect APAC to spend at least $100 million in Democratic primaries, largely trained on eliminating incumbent squad members from their seats. It's likely that even more money will be spent by affiliated super PACs, including the Democratic Majority for Israel PAC and the mainstream Democrats PAC too. These PACs have already launched six-figure ad buys against Bowman, Lee, and Tlaib a year away from the election, an exorbitant, hardly strategic commitment largely meant to prove that money will not be in short supply. Meanwhile, small dollar fundraising numbers are weighed down across the board, making it even more difficult for those progressives to fund the defense. So let's just pause right there. That number is huge. I mean, it's unfathomable almost. They are pledging to spend more than $100 million on just a couple of races specifically to knock out these progressives. And they're spending specifically in primaries. And in doing so, they are drastically increasing their chances of success because they know that they're not going to be able to defeat incumbent Democrats in these deep blue districts. So the next best thing is to run a right wing pro-Israel Democrat in the primaries. And unfortunately, that could work. So even though Ilhan Omar crushed her Republican opponent back in the 2022 general election, she barely eked out a win in the primary and was just two points ahead of her opponent. Now, part of the reason why it was so close is likely due to outside spending on behalf of her opponent, Don Samuels. Now, according to Open Secrets, there was more than $600,000 in outside spending against Ilhan Omar in this race. And now her opponent from 2022 has recently announced that he will be running against her again. And this time he is getting smart. He's soliciting donations from the Israel lobby by... You guessed it, criticizing her comments about Israel. And with APAC now supercharging his campaign, he could actually pull off a victory. 
But Ilhan Omar is not the only progressive who's vulnerable because Slade continues, already Bush, Bowman, Lee, and Omar have drawn primary opponents for their safe blue seats for the 2024 cycle thanks to strenuous recruiting efforts from APAC, which has already begun making expensive incendiary ad buys against those members, according to reporting in the Associated Press, The Intercept, and Jewish Insider. Bush is facing St. Louis prosecuting attorney Wesley Bell, who was running for Senate until late October. Bowman is facing 70-year-old Westchester County Executive George Latimer. Lee is facing perennial candidate Bavini Patel. Omar is facing a rematch with Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels, former Illinois congressional candidate Sarah Gadd, and military vet Tim Peterson. Jewish Insider has reported that APAC is still feverishly recruiting for a challenger for Tlaib as well, and is reportedly still looking for primary challengers for Presley and Ocasio-Cortez. So if they're not already being primaried, they're going to be, and APAC is going to make sure of that and also make sure that their opponents are well-funded. Now, when you look at the primary opponents to these progressives, they are absolutely despicable, spineless people. Wesley Bell, for example, who's primary in Cori Bush, this is somebody who dropped out of a campaign against a Republican, Josh Hawley, to go after Cori Bush. Now, what was one of the first things that he did in choosing to drop out and end primary Bush, he decided to solicit donations from the Israel lobby by criticizing Bush's stance towards Israel. As you know, she's one of the leaders calling for a ceasefire, and he's criticizing her comments on Israel. We know what he's doing. He's trying to draw in money from groups like APAC because that makes it easier. Why run against a Republican like Josh Hawley when you can just run against the progressive in Congress who's not going to get that APAC money and automatically give you an advantage? This is what they're doing. Now, to be clear, I'm not against primary challenges in theory. In fact, I think that political primaries strengthen democracy and they should happen. But they need to be organic and they need to be grassroots primaries. When a primary is forced by a well-funded special interest group that lobbies on behalf of a foreign government, that to me is not democracy. That's a completely different thing. That is the opposite of democracy. That is forcing progressives like Cori Bush and Rashida Tlaib, who raise money exclusively from small dollar grassroots donors, to go up against political behemoths who have millions and millions of dollars to spend virtually unlimited money to defeat them. And no special interest group spending money in elections is something that's good, but it feels like this in particular is foreign interference to me. When you have a lobby that represents the interests of a foreign government that we don't pay taxes to influencing these elections, influencing our democracy, that to me is foreign interference. Now, thankfully, the leader of the House Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries, has taken a really strong stance in the past against foreign interference in American elections. So in 2017, he released this statement urging the Trump administration to come clean about its ties to the Russian government, writing, 17 different intelligence agencies have concluded that Russia interfered with our election to help Donald Trump win the presidency. It now appears possible that Jeff Sessions, the nation's top law enforcement officer, may have been involved with this insidious foreign interference campaign. The House of Representatives is the institution closest to the people by constitutional design. As such, the House must protect the integrity of our democracy. 
But that's not the only time he called out foreign interference. He actually accused Trump of abusing power by soliciting foreign interference from Russia. And he called Trump an illegitimate and fake president specifically because of Russian interference that helped him get elected. So Hakeem Jeffries has been clear and consistent when it comes to pushing back against foreign interference in American elections. And since he's now become the leader of the Democratic Party, I am sure that he's going to use his power and influence to fight back against attacks on his own members by the this interest group that lobbies exclusively at the behest of a foreign government, right? Well, actually, no, he's not doing that. Slate continues, so far, House Democratic leadership has been quiet about all of this. Minority leader Hakeem Jeffries, who took more money from the Israel lobby in 2022 than any other group and is featured prominently on the lobbying group's website alongside House Republican leadership, hasn't tried to dissuade the primarying of these progressive Democratic incumbents. He could easily publicly disavow such spending and make it clear to candidates that accepting such support is against caucus policy. In 2019, House Democrats made an official policy to blacklist any Democratic consultant or political group who aided a progressive challenger against a sitting Democratic incumbent ahead of the 2020 elections. But so far, Jeffries has only managed to say outside groups are going to do what outside groups are going to do. I think House Democrats are going to continue to support each other. It's strange sitting quietly by while a Republican funded outside group lays waste to a popular group of incumbents would invite a host of disastrous risks and would crucially jeopardize Jeffrey's own campaign to retake the House. He certainly can't be House Majority Leader if APAC knocks Democrats out of their races. And it will try. In 2022, APAC spent millions on a conservative Democrat to oppose Summer Lee in her 2022 primary race. After failing to knock her out, the group continues to spend against her in the general election, helping her Republican opponent and nearly costing Democrats the seat. So let me get this straight. Hakeem Jeffries is willing to make an exception for foreign interference when it comes to Israel, since their lobby is funding him, and literally jeopardize the Democratic Party's chances of retaking the House in 2024, all to appease this right-wing interest group? Am I getting this right? I mean, this is supposed to be the Democratic Party leader, but he's effectively controlled opposition at this point. And that's not an unreasonable accusation since he was holding hands and singing Kumbaya with Christo-fascist Republican Speaker Mike Johnson at Tuesday's pro-Israel rally. I mean, does he represent Republicans or does he represent Democrats? More importantly, does he represent Israel or does he represent America? Because to remain quiet as they announce their intent to knock members of his own party out of office, that makes him complicit, especially since he's the leader. He's like a boxer who's paid to lose the match. It's, it's fucking outrageous. But it's not surprising because if you've been following along, Hakeem Jeffries has a history of hostility towards the left, as Sharon Zhang pointed out in this article for Truth Out. He even told The Atlantic, there'd never be a moment where I bend the knee to the hard left democratic socialism. So if he has a history of hating leftists as much as Republicans hate leftists, is it really that absurd to think that he'd prefer one of his largest donors replace members of the squad with more conservative Democrats who are more compliant or even a Republican? I mean, I personally don't think it is, especially considering the fact that they're already proving to be a thorn in the side of corporate stooges and Israel sycophants like him. For example, at the pro-Israel rally where he chummed it up with Republicans, anti-Semitic pastor John Hagee was also there. This is somebody who blamed Jewish people for the Holocaust, and Summer Lee drew attention to this on Twitter, writing, I'm deeply concerned that members of both parties shared a stage yesterday with noted anti-Semitic bigot John Hagee. This must be condemned. 
So ask yourself this question. Don't you think it makes sense that he'd prefer to not have progressives like this in Congress who inconveniently point stuff like this out or call for a ceasefire? Of course. So he wants APAC to do what they're doing. That's why he's being quiet. It's a choice, right? So we're in this situation where the squad's bravery could actually cost them re-election. And I don't think that APAC is going to be able to take out all of them. But even if they're able to take out one or two of them, I think that that's awful because the goal is to grow the number of progressives in Congress, not lose more of them. So we've got to do two things. First and foremost, we've got to stand in solidarity with members of the squad and donate to them if we're able to. And second of all, we need to shame Hakeem Jeffries into doing his fucking job and defending his party. That is what you are supposed to do as leader of the Democratic Party. You are supposed to defend members of your party. So if he's going to refuse to acquiesce, then maybe he's the one who should get a primary challenger. You know, it would be difficult to defeat him because he's the leader. He has lots of money. You don't become the leader without being a good fundraiser. But it's happened before. Remember, Joe Crowley, who was supposed to be in Hakeem Jeffries' position right now, was knocked out by AOC in Democratic primary back in 2018. So if he's going to functionally do the bidding of Republicans and take money from right-wing organizations that support Republicans, then he needs to be exposed for the GOP plant that he is, and he definitely needs to be primaried. Want more? Visit HumanistReport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.